once you change the politics, once you change the law, the culture followed extremely quickly to the point where gay marriage now is almost not even debatable, it's certainly not within sort of, quote, educated society, right? If you were to say, I oppose gay marriage in, in sort of ruling class circles, you know, say, say the executives of uh, 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 the executive suites of, of major American corporations, you know, or uh, media organizations or universities, you would be looked at as a caveman, okay? You know, I've spent my career taking on some of the cultural baddies, you know, some of the most prominent intellectuals in the world, some of them in public debates, some of them behind the scenes. And I've come to realize that ideas define everything that we do. With an academic degree, you're trained to be a researcher and writer to the point that it's annoying. I mean, but I'm grateful for it. I'm not talking about books I've not read. I'm not talking about papers I've not read. Whether I agree with them or not actually isn't the point. Uh, there are quite a few books that I would read that I would say are actually evil books. Donald Trump, when he was in a divorce with his first wife, she said he has a copy of Mein Kampf next to his bed. I wish more people did. If the German people had bothered to read that book rather than just have it on their shelf, we might have avoided the Holocaust. If more people read the Quran, they'd be wiser to what Islam actually is, what they actually believe. If people bothered to read, as I have, the writings of Klaus Schwab and the various contributors to the World Economic Forum and the ideas that are driving the globalists, I read them because I want to understand their mentality. I cut out the middleman. I go straight to the ideology. Everything in your life is being defined by either your ideas or the ideas of the people around you. And each episode, we're gonna be digging into a different idea that appears in the culture. This is Ideas Have Consequences with me, Larry Alex Taunton. Most importantly, I brought my Bible, okay? And, you know, it's First Presbyterian Church, Jamaica, and this was written by my mother with my name, with my, this is a long time ago, with my name, with my address, with everything. In case I lost it, somebody would return it. You know, in the old days, if you lost something, they returned it. Today, a little bit less so. <laughs> but I, I saw this, and I said, I have to bring it and just show it because it brings back so many memories. I believe in God. I believe in the Bible. I'm a Christian. I'm, I, you know, I have a lot of reasons. I love, I love people. We're doing great. In fact, with evangelicals in Iowa just came out. I'm number one at 29, substantially ahead of anyone else. I'm happy about that. You know why? That's the reason. That's the reason. I love Christmas. I love Christmas. You go to stores now, you don't see the word Christmas. It says happy holidays all over. I say, where's Christmas? I tell my wife, don't go to those stores. I want to see Christmas. No, I want to see Christmas. And you know, other people can have their holidays. No, but, but Christmas is Christmas. I want to see Merry Christmas. Remember the expression, Merry Christmas? You don't see it anymore. You're going to see it if I get elected. I can tell you right now. I can tell you right now. And I just want to thank everybody. You're special people. and I love you all. And this is the key. Thank you all. Thank you very much. Steve Cortez, great to have you with us on uh, the podcast. Ideas have consequences. Uh, you're a guy who deals on the, the consequences 
you know, end of a lot of the ideas because right. you're, you're involved in policy, policymaking. Uh, tell people just a little bit about who you are and what you do. Sure. And, and by the way, on the idea end of that, of <laughs> ideas and consequences, you have been invaluable to me and I think to, you know, legions of Americans at helping us on the idea end. I because appreciate that. You are a, a scholar who can distill incredibly complex uh, ideas down to something that is very um, uh, consumable for people like us who are not scholars, uh, who don't live in that You're very in, kind in to say world. so. So thank you for everything you do. And you have, I think, made me more effective in my arena, and I'm sure that's true for a lot of folks in the audience and a lot of folks in society. But no, quickly. I love to think that I, through you, am advising presidential candidates. Well, you are. Yes, you absolutely are. Absolutely. No, I think you are an influencer on your own, but I think you are also an influencer of influencers. Um, I don't think I know it. I mean, I know it's the case with me. I know it's the case with other people who have influence in, in society and in business and politics, you know, in, in a lot of spheres of, of the world that really matter. And, um, no, I, I view you in, in a sense almost as, a, as the intellect in residence to help <laughs> a, lot of, a lot of us who are not deeply intellectual, who are not engaged in scholarship in the way you are. And it's, it's so helpful in the practical world. But yes, so in the practical world, uh, what do I do? I am a, a media strategist and spokesman. I'm a talking head on TV and radio. Uh, do a lot of writing. So I, I'm a communica political communications strategist and practitioner. That's the, the quick answer of who I am. Came Tell out people where they can find you. Wall Street background before that, but that's what I do now. And yes, so please find me on social media. I'm at Cortez Steve. Cortez with an S, Cortez Steve. On the Twitter, uh, I'm also on Getter, and Getter, I'm just at Steve. Believe it or not, I got that single name uh, ID there. And you're on Substack. And Substack, yes, thank you. And, and please uh, look, all of my articles post on Substack, stevecortez.substack.com. Uh, and if you're so moved, subscribe to the Substack, please. Steve Cortez is an awesome guy. He is a, he's a good friend of mine. I really enjoy watching uh, Steve navigate what to me looks like miserable. <laughs> You know, I very uh, what you do. I, I think you do it with a with graciousness. A job that to me looks almost impossible. Yeah, at times, no, it for sure, it looks almost impossible. Uh, yesterday, when I was doing Sarah Gonzalez's show, I was thinking, you know, Steve Cortez would be better at this than I am. I I need Steve here right now in order to do <laughs> this because with navigating you know, some of the weeds of you know politics and what's going on in that, and you do it so beautifully, and you enjoy it. I do. You, no, I, you really do enjoy it. I do. You know, I love the fight. I mean, I'm an ex-jock, right? And so I love, uh, I, you know, competitive by nature. I know you certainly are too. Uh, and I love that there's a winner and loser, right? That it's, I mean, there is an objective, you know, winner and loser in politics, right? I mean, you win the nomination, you win the general election, you know, or you don't. And um, so, I, you know, I love that competitive aspect of it. And then, you know, on a much more, you know, sort of uh, significant note, I also view it as a calling. I, I truly do that. Uh, that it's a vocation. That and that's that obvious. God wants me in this arena and wants me fighting and fighting hard, but fighting in a way that's ethical. And there's not a lot of that in politics. I'm probably not going to shock you to tell you that that politics attracts a lot of very unethical people because they're attracted to power, right, and to the to the idea of power and 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 claiming it. And so I think that makes it though even more important that Christians engage, uh, whether it's just as good citizens or people like me who are actual practitioners, you know, in that arena. You know Donald Trump, you know him personally, engaged with him many times, been an advisor uh, to Donald Trump. What's your, what's your knee-jerk reaction as you watch a video like sure. that? Sure. Well, you know, first, it makes me smile because he's funny, right? I mean, he's a legitimately funny man. And on one of the smaller points there, before I get to sort of the more profound points, on one of the smaller points, 
Uh, he did follow through, in fact, on Christmas, and I know this because uh, I was blessed, my family and I, to go to four White House Christmas parties, and they were called Christmas parties. And previous to that, they were holiday parties, and they are now, again, uh, holiday parties. So he, he followed through on that small part. The, but the more important part, I think, there is uh, Donald Trump promising to be a, a warrior in the public square, in the political arena, on behalf of Christians. And what I think is very important, uh, a lot of Christians were naturally, and maybe still are, suspicious of him because of the life that he had lived, right? It is not a life in general that evidenced a deep Christian faith, right, to say the least. And is this New York playboy actually going to be sort of the lion, the warrior, at least in the public square, that Christians wanted and profoundly needed? Uh, I would argue that he was, and that his personal life, his personal behavior, even his personal faith is not nearly as relevant in the political arena as his willingness to fight on behalf of Christianity. I would argue on behalf of religious liberty broadly, but Christianity has certainly been the most targeted of any faith regarding uh, government interference in the faith life of citizens. Um, he makes the assertion there that he's a Christian. Do you believe he's a Christian? Hi there. Sorry for taking over Larry's ad space. This is Steve Cortez. Steve Cortez. Steve Cortez. Steve Cortez. A lot of folks simply don't realize that the problems in their life, the problems in our society, can actually be traced back to globalism. When I was a young man, I was one of six children. My father didn't make a lot of money. I grew up in a middle-class neighborhood where most families supported themselves on a single income. Uh, not in luxury, but comfortably in the United States. That is simply impossible for the vast majority of Americans today. So something changed, and, and we hardly talk about it, right? It changed dramatically, you know, just in my lifetime. As a former Wall Street guy, I believe in evidence and data. The political world is full of sloganeering. Uh, it's full of a lot of folks who make very grandiose statements, but don't back or cite those statements with evidence, with evidence and data. When that orange guy came down the escalator, he won me over, largely with his uh, correct assessment that globalism was harming Americans, particularly China. Uh, he saw it and he indicted it. And he and I spoke many times about trade issues, about globalism more broadly. When, when, when we view what is happening to us, when we view the injustices and the outrages that are happening in society, we need to look behind the surface level. Many of the ills that afflict this country can be traced back directly to globalism. Housing affordability, it has never been worse. The globalists don't believe in strong borders. They see cheap labor. This sick and demented idea that children should have their sexuality, their, their sex changed permanently. It's super important for us to see when, when, there's, when there's an injustice, when there's an abuse, when there's a crisis, what is behind the crisis? Who is behind the curtain? So please click on the link in the bio to make sure that you are subscribed so that you're going to get the new episodes when the Steve Cortez show premieres. He makes the assertion there that he's a Christian. Do you believe he's a Christian? You know, I don't know. I mean, that's between him and God, right? It's not, I, I'm not here to judge his Christianity. I would say this, uh, I, I, what I would say, and this, uh, this I do know because I have some personal experience with this. I think the Donald Trump who entered the political arena officially in 2015 versus the Donald Trump who governed, and I hope until this current day, I think has materially changed for the better 
and has certainly grown a faith life because of the people who were around him. Um, and I'd like to think I was one of them. So there were, there were committed Christians around him who had tremendous influence on him, not just politically, but also personally. I'll give you a couple specific examples. Mike Pence, who uh, I think is an incredibly honorable man, incredible man of faith and a family. I personally don't care for his politics. Uh, I have no interest in his candidacy for the presidency, but an, but an incredible, honorable man and a great Christian example. <laughs> he had such influence as Trump's vice president, and I saw it at times firsthand when he would almost force Trump to pray. I mean, force is a bit of a strong word, but he would, uh, he would pressure him. He would nudge him to say, we, we need to pray about this. Um, and praying with both of them in the Oval Office, for example, uh, I think over time, Trump's heart was softened and moved. Um, now, does that mean that Trump became you know, a pastor-like figure? No. Uh, and is he authentically in his heart a Christian believer? I don't know. I sure hope so. Uh, he says he is. I guess why wouldn't I take him at his word? But I do know this, that the, the people around him, many people in the conservative political arena, of course, are very much motivated by the Christian faith. And so people who are authentically Christian around him, uh, who were helping him, guiding him, influencing him, I think not only moved the, po the politics in the right direction, but I think also moved the heart of Donald Trump. And I, I saw him personally become a different person. Not that he, you know, he, he never lost the brash New Yorkness, right, of his, of his being and his character and his attitudes, um, but it was, he was different than he was when he first ran in 2015. Well, and don't you think, too, the brashness? I mean, one of the things that I find a, a, a bit annoying in the portrayal of Trump is my experience with businessmen in New York, New Jersey, Philadelphia, Boston, is they're a lot like Trump. I mean, mm -hmm. uh, particularly guys who, are with his background, say, in construction, mm -hmm. uh, maybe not necessarily the, the, you know, uh, the, the typical lawyer, or, but guys who come out of that background that he's in, they're almost all chest beaters. They are, uh, they're, they're often a pretty rough lot. I mean, sure. Do you think Trump is really so anomalous from that type of guy that you, you encounter in the Northeast? Sure. No, listen, I think he, uh, he is certainly part of that scene, yes. I think yes. you're exactly correct. Now, I think even within that scene, he's probably at the outer edges of it, right? Yes, in terms I would of agree his, with that. You know, his aggression uh, and his brashness and all of that. But I think, too, to me, the, uh, you know, as I sort of previously mentioned, to me, what matters is not... You know, of course, we would love for every, every leader to be incredibly virtuous, right? And I think as Christians, we would always love to be governed by people who have authentically Christian hearts, right? That is, that is the, should be the goal. That's right? the ideal. That's the ideal. Um, but what really matters in the political arena is that somebody has enough fight and conviction to fight on our behalf, to, to, to stand up against the secular humanist tide which has overtaken so much of politics and so much of government power. It's not just the political arena, but actual the weaponization of government power against churches, against believers, um, against our ideals. So to have that person be, uh, be willing to engage in that fight on our behalf, even if the motives aren't pure. And in the case of Donald Trump, a lot of people have made the case, and I think it's a credible case to make. Again, I, don't, I can't read his heart. But it's a credible case to make that he made a bargain effectively, that he made a political bargain um, with evangelicals and committed Christians to say, I will be your man in the arena and I need your support. And it's very possible that you know, to this day, in his mind, in his heart, it's a transaction, it's a bargain. But if it is, I guess my point is, we're not looking for a leader of a church, we're not looking for a pastor, we're looking for a leader of the country, for a political warrior. And in that regard, 
Um, I think he delivered, and I think a lot of other folks are delivering on that score. Uh, Ron DeSantis being one of them, who I'm sure we're going to talk about as well. But uh, uh, And in his case, by the way, I think much more, in my view, much more certainly flowing from his heart rather than from political calculus. But either way, we, we need the protection of political leaders who will fight for us. Well, you know, one of the things that really uh, <laughs> I find somewhat baffling from pompous figures like, let's say, a Russell Moore um, or a David French, for instance, or to some extent, say, a Tim Keller or a John Piper, uh, all Christian figures, some of them pastors, David French at the New York Times, the conservative at the New York Times, is these guys treated the role of president the way they would a pastor. They mm -hmm. were saying basically that he fails on the qualifications of being an elder, you know, or mm -hmm. something like that within the church. And I thought, do you, do you guys even bother to read your Bibles? I right. mean, um, Paul appealed to Caesar. Uh, he, he made an appeal to Caesar when he was, when he was being tried. Uh, you have, of course, you know, in the book of Esther, you have an appeal to Xerxes on behalf of the Jews. I mean, a pagan. And you talk about a guy who, um, you know, was a philanderer. I mean, Xerxes most definitely was uh, falling into that, you know, that very pagan uh, um, uh, genre, as it were, of guys who, you know, he's, he's, he, he, has a, he has a harem, for heaven's sake. And yet... You, you, see, and you see in the book of Daniel, you see figures like Cyrus, Darius, these kinds of individuals who are secular, even pagan mm -hmm. individuals that God uses on behalf right. of his own people. We see that repeatedly. And yet the critique of Trump would often come from this kind of amen corner mm -hmm. uh, of the Christian realm that Trump, well, Trump, you know, he's not this, he's not that, he doesn't. He doesn't meet the qualifications that we would have for a Christian leader. Well, how many presidents have? Sure. And it, it always kind of struck me, and I'm kind of interested in your reaction to this, that it is, it, it's a kind of virtue that is a non-virtue. It's, it's, it's a boldness. I, I'm going to make other people pay for my virtue. Right. Uh, it, because you're saying, in effect, I'm going to stand on my principles and say, I don't want this guy which means I prefer, and that could apply to DeSantis too. I don't want, I don't want because they don't meet what I think a Christian should look like, mm -hmm. and thus become a de facto supporter of the left right. that is going to push a radical agenda that is going to make the unborn or you know adolescents, you know, pay. Right. I find that astonishing. I mean, how do you react to that? Right. Well, my reaction is that you know a lot of the people you mentioned, these uh, these leaders, these evangelical leaders, and there's certainly a lot of them on the Catholic side as well. Uh, they are largely self-serving. I think they're self-absorbed, quite frankly, um, and I think that they they are either unable or unwilling to recognize the reality of the culture war that we are currently engaged in. And you you touched on it. This is not our grandparents. Uh, liberals, or our grandparents' Democratic Party, right, where there is a place for people. Marxism has taken over. Right. It is thoroughly leftist, right? Yes. There, there are almost no liberals left in the, in the classical sense. It is a thoroughly leftist, and in that regard, because it is leftist and because it is Marxist, um, it is virulently anti-Christian. So there is no middle ground any longer, right, to, to occupy. So even if you have some distaste for the personal mores or the, or the personal behavior of people who are on our side politically, 
again, in the political arena. I'm not talking about who should be a pastor or an elder at a church, uh, but who should be a political warrior on our behalf. Um, I think you're really missing the, the forest for the trees, and, and it's, it's an incredible shame, and it does real damage. You, know, you mentioned, too, which, which presidents, for example, if we're looking at presidents, which presidents would measure up? Uh, if we take, for example, John F. Kennedy, who I believe was probably the last good Democrat, really, of, of national Democrat political figures, you know, fiercely anti-communist, um, I think in many ways a really successful president. I mean, we'll never know how successful he could have been because it was so tragically cut short, but uh, somebody who in his personal life clearly did not remotely live what we would call a virtuous life, who did not live up to the ideals of his own professed Catholicism in any ways, uh, but in my view, was actually a highly successful president and was an extremely able chief executive for the country. And, and as I said, I would also add, sort of parenthetically, probably the last really good solid Democrat when those still So you uh, weren't existed. a fan of Jimmy Carter? No. <laughs> no, and by the way, and they're, they're the opposite, right? Somebody who, by all indications, lived a really authentically pro-family Christian life, right? I mean, it seems to be a very devout man uh, and yet, when it came to public policy, failed at every turn, right? Yeah. Um, so I, I will take the philandering JFK, who is strong as a, as a political leader uh, on behalf of America, on behalf of our principles, versus the devout Jimmy Carter, who, while he may be a very virtuous person that we should pattern our personal lives after, completely failed in the public square, in the public well, arena. Well, let's, let's take historically a figure like... Uh, uh, let's say Constantine. Uh, there is a historical right. debate. Was Constantine really a Christian? You know, right. he, he converted supposedly to the Christian faith, and uh, you you will you will have historians who will say, ah, you know, he remained a pagan. He was he was never a Christian. I say, who cares? I mean, other right. than other than for the purpose of his own soul, the question historically is irrelevant right. because the fact is that Constantine issued the Edict of Milan in 313, which made Christianity right. a legal religion. You couldn't persecute it anymore. So, so his policy mattered, regardless of his personal right. life. If, if he remained a pagan to the day he died, he had a massive impact right. on the culture and upon the lives of Christians by making it Not. a legal religion. And that, yeah. to me, that, to me, is Trumpish in the sense that whether or not he really is a Christian, which matters at a personal level. Sure. But at the end of the day, it comes down to his policy. And I've talked to federal judges who have said Trump absolutely transformed the federal judiciary mm -hmm. and turned, uh, turned the tide on issues like abortion. Right. Right. And re regarding Constantine, you know, personally, I have a hard time believing that he wasn't Christian because I can't see a non-Christian leader actually convening and, and, and leading the Council of Nicaea. So, I mean, I tend to believe... All right, he was. But regardless, oh, you haven't read Dan Brown, but Dan Brown right. says it was it was a big conspiracy. Right, but regardless, <laughs> I, I think you're exactly correct in your point that it's you know historically da Vinci and Code is crap. I just right. want to say that. But anyway, <laughs> historically and politically, it's irrelevant, right? Of course, it matters tremendously for his soul. Yeah. Uh, but uh, but to us, look, you know, studying history, it's you're exactly correct that I, I think it's irrelevant. And regarding yeah, to get very practical and very present data, to bring it from the 300s all the way to the 2020s, right now. The, the reason that the Supreme Court finally overturned that terrible law, that complete injustice of Roe v. Wade, or I shouldn't say law, but decision of Roe v. Wade, is because of, number one, 50 years of prayer and work from pro-life warriors, uh, many of whom toiled in the wilderness for a very, very long time in what was a very unpopular cause for much of that time. Um, so, number one, the, the credit goes to, to that movement that persevered and prayed and worked. But number two, 
definitely to Donald J. Trump, all right, who promised, you know, and again, the, the paradox here, right, that this New York playboy was going to become the man. If you had told us before he got into politics, someday Donald Trump is going to have Roe v. Wade overturned. I mean, people would have looked at you as if you have three heads, right? Uh, but this New York playboy, paradox of paradoxes, uh, enters office, and again, whether it's, it flowed from a Christian heart or whether it flowed from a transactional promise is irrelevant because the result was the same. He appointed judges, justices, judges at the federal uh, appeals level and then ju justices at the Supreme Court level who actually believed in logic, in real precedent, right? For example, I recognize the Constitution. the Constitution, that there is no there is no right to an abortion in the Constitution, that it was invented, you know? And by the way, I would hope that even people who believe that abortion should be legal, and it's certainly I'm not in that camp, but I, I would hope that if you're an honest person who believes abortion should be legal, you would recognize that Roe v. Wade was a terrible decision, that it was literally a right was invented uh, for political reasons, by, by a few justices, right? And that that was overturned and it was sent back to the states where you know I believe it belonged all the while. And that happened because of Donald Trump, I, you know, absolutely. And he deserves enormous credit, uh, unending credit for it. You know, what's kind of interesting, and again, you know him, so I'm just speaking as, a, as an outsider, but what has struck me is, is quite interesting as it relates to abortion in particular, as it relates to Donald Trump, is his, his, his history did not suggest that he was a pro-life guy, right. but that there does appear to have been this transaction, a, a, a business arrangement, as it were, where Trump said, look, I'll be your guy, I'll be your champion, you vote for me, I will represent you, and that he, that he maintained it on an issue that, at least, again, speaking as an outsider, where I'm not sure he has a strong personal conviction. Do you, do you think he has a strong personal pro-life conviction or that that was really just part of the arrangement. No, I, I know this matters to you, and I'm, 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 going, right. I'm going to keep the deal. Yeah. The, look, the honest answer is I don't know for yeah, sure. Yeah, okay. Right? But, uh, but I suspect that it is the transactional nature, yeah. right? Of, you know, the, hey, this is a political bargain um, that we made, and I'm going to keep my end of the bargain. And uh, I suspect that. Now, I will give you a, a contrast to that where I believe it absolutely flows from the heart. Um, and that is Ron DeSantis in Florida and the pro-life legislation that he just signed in the state of Florida, which is some of the most uh, life-protecting legislation in all of America. Uh, he signed that legislation right before announcing that he was running for presidency to take on Donald Trump in the Republican primary. I got to speak with him about that. I was actually had a very long conversation with him about switching camps because I am now advocating for Ron DeSantis instead of Donald Trump for the Republican nomination. And as part of that conversation, this bill was at that point advancing in the Florida legislature and uh, to ban all abortions after six weeks in the state of Florida with some exceptions. And I told him, I said, listen, I am thoroughly pro-life, Governor, but I'm going to tell you as a political strategist uh, that this is going to be problematic for you, maybe not in the Republican primary, but if you do win the nomination, uh, this, uh, this level of pro-life protection is not, does not poll well. Uh, in swing states. It just doesn't on a national level. It might be polling okay in Florida, but it doesn't poll well. And I'm like, you, know, you just need to know that. He said, I absolutely get that. I acknowledge that. I, this is not politically expedient. He said, but it is the right thing to do, and I have to do it. Um, and so that, to me, he, you know, he made a decision that he knew could cost him politically. Um, if he does make it to the general election, could potentially cost the election, possibly. Um, and said, but I'm going to do it, and I'm going to save innocent babies. I'm going to save mothers from going through that trauma of aborting their babies, particularly if they're being pressured into it. You know, uh, the state of Texas, by the way, let's talk about some of the practical 
ramifications of this, the, the benefits, shouldn't say ramifications, the benefits of it, this, uh, in Texas, since, since Roe was overturned and since Texas instituted its pro-life law, according to CNN, and they, of course, were lamenting this, 10,000 additional babies have been born in the state of Texas. If you look at the pre-Roe trends incredible? versus afterward. And, 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 and CNN was actually reporting that as a, as a problem. Like, oh my gosh, 10,000 beautiful babies, 10,000 new souls you know, brought into this world, 10,000 new Texans. Uh, but it shows you that th this matters. Like, right, politics matter. And there's, there's always this debate, Larry, of is politics downstream of culture, right, or vice versa? And, and people can get sort of very philosophically hung up on it. In my view, it, it's, it's all a mix. It's all a yeah. milieu, right? It's all together. I mean, uh, sometimes politics is driving culture. Sometimes culture drives politics. But the point is both. We, we need to be thoroughly and fully engaged in both, particularly as Christians. Number one, because it, because it works, because it's effective to be involved. But number two, because if we take seriously the admonitions of our Lord, uh, he wants us to go out into the world, right? To be salt to the world, to, to multiply in the world. He never said... Uh, go to your Christian ghetto and, and thrive there in your own small community, right? I mean, that is not the Great Commission. But Steve, Steve, Christians aren't supposed to be political. Well, <laughs> we, are, we are absolutely supposed to be political. You know, you say often, and you're so correct, that there is, there is no area of human life, no area of earth, right, that is not touched and claimed by King Jesus, right? Yeah. So King Jesus has dominion over politics. He clearly does. Now, politics is a very dirty business, and it is. And believe me, I know that from the inside. So there could be times when you might think, well, how can a business that is that corrupted, you know, very often, not everyone is corrupt, of course, and not every institution, but largely, you know, how can that, how can Christ have dominion over that? Um, well, he does, and, and we know he does. And, you know, as you were mentioning earlier, we know that he has used, you know, incredibly imperfect or even evil political figures to advance his causes. We know it from biblical history. We know it from, uh, from the rest of history outside of the Bible. And let me give you a specific example of why I think Christians need to be deeply involved in politics, not just involved at the periphery, right, but need to dive into politics, is because of how much politics is driving culture and driving our society. And, and that example I would give you is, is Proposition 8 in California. Proposition 8 passed in 2008 in, in liberal California. The explain, big, explain what Proposition yeah. 8 is. In, in liberal California, Proposition 8 was a referendum put to the people of California to, uh, to codify, to make law traditional marriage between one man and one woman. So Prop 8 was, was the enshrinement of traditional one man, one woman marriage in California law. It passed overwhelmingly in liberal giant California. It passed by 600,000 votes in 2008. Now, that law was overturned nationwide. Similar laws were overturned by the Obergefell Supreme Court decision, which I think was just as illogical as Roe and, and is doing almost maybe as much damage as Roe did. But regardless, it was overturned. If you were to take that referendum today, if we could somehow put Prop 8 in front of California voters again, I guarantee you it would lose by several million votes rather than win by 600,000. And my point here is once you change the politics, once you change the law, the culture followed extremely quickly to the point where gay marriage now is almost not even debatable, it's certainly not within sort of, quote, educated society, right? If you were to say, I oppose gay marriage in, in sort of ruling class circles, you know, say, say the executives of, uh, uh, the executive suites of, of major American corporations, you know, or uh, media organizations or universities, you would be looked at as a caveman, okay? But not that long ago, Larry, 15 years ago, the people of California overwhelmingly protected, protected traditional marriage. 
So my, my point there is look at what politics did. Look at how much politics was a major driver of changing society. And in this view, in this case, I think changing it for the worse. Yeah, and, and I do agree with you that it's a, that it's a mix of both. Um, I mean, in a sense, politics is sort of a practical, one of the practical outworkings of your worldview. You know, it says a lot about your worldview, the way that you vote. Mm -hmm. uh, but there's no question that once the culture, uh, or at least the levers of power have been seized, and the left always targets the levers of power. It's, mm -hmm. yeah, they, they always aim for the rudder of the ship. That's, that's what they want. They're, they're, they very seldom are targeting the broader population. They go for, you know, for a legislative end run, you know, legislative fiat to, to, to uh, um, you know, target the judiciary in order to get, you know, what they want. But I, uh, I think it's very interesting um, that what you're saying is so true because there's no question that the culture has changed in regards to attitudes on some of that. And I think part of that is due to the fact that they push so far to the left that when you get a win on something, say, as radical, and we haven't yet, something as radical as, you know, say, trying to end uh, adolescent sex change surgeries, that you're like, so glad we defeated that so that you're not even debating the things that are, you know, radical just a few steps back from that. Like to your point, right. like gay marriage, right? you know, for instance, you, you know, now that's just largely accepted because the battles are being fought downstream from right. that of right. things that are even more radical right. than that. Um, how do you, what would you say to, you know, people who are, who are watching, who are listening to us, who say that Christians you know, we really just we we need to not be engaging in in the political realm because this is corrupt because it is uh, a uh, you know politics isn't what changes the hearts of individuals. We're supposed to be focusing on you know on you know engagement at a at a very personal level where we're trying to right. change hearts less than changing votes. What what's your response to that? Sure. Well, I would respond with the historical examples of. <clears throat> major positive movements in this country that were, if not mostly, at least partly motivated by people of faith. So I would say, for example, abolition of slavery, right, which was largely driven by people of faith who took seriously the, the necessity, the command from God to treat their, uh, their black brothers and sisters as, as fellow children of God, right? So abolition of slavery would be one example. Bringing it into the last century, the civil rights movement, largely motivated by people of faith engaging in the political arena, motivated by their faith, engaging in politics, engaging in the public square, and really you know, massively changing attitudes in the United States. I mean, think of how much, how much progress was made regarding race relations, at least until recently, the left is unwinding it for very devious reasons, but until recently, from the civil rights movement until, say, you know, the early 2000s. Those are a couple of examples, really powerful, profound examples, where people of faith engaging in politics have truly changed society. So, you know, number one, I would give them those historical examples. Let me give you something much more recent, um, which was, I think, a failure of the church to act and a failure of, of people of faith, by and large, to act uh, you know, in concert. And that would be the, the lockdowns of 2020. Um, when churches were closed, when small business was closed, but liquor stores and strip, uh, strip clubs and Walmart was open, right, when we had this just this absurd inequity in American society, um, where the lockdowns were, were capricious and illogical, particularly in the blue jurisdictions in places like New York and Illinois and California, the churches largely acquiesced, largely. Now, there were some notable exceptions. 
a lot of the Calvary Chapel, I, I think that denomination deserves enormous credit for what they did. They really stood up, particularly in California, where they have a very John large John MacArthur. Presence. Yeah. Yep. So there, there were some notable exceptions. But by and large, Catholic churches, evangelical churches, everyone acquiesced. Everyone essentially surrendered. If, if pe the people of God, if Christians stood up and said, you have no, you have no authority, government, over this place, over this house of worship. You know, your authority ends at the door to this church. If we had done that in a, in a much more significant way, we would have not only protected the church, but all of society, right? Because if we, if we had shown um, the right kind of disobedience, right? Courage. And the right kind of courage, it wouldn't have just helped that, okay, we're gonna have church service on Sunday. It would have, there would have been so many ancillary positive effects. Well, <clears throat> then we're gonna do school as well, okay? And no, our kids are going to play basketball. And uh, we are going to go have a picnic at the park, right? I mean, in other words, it would have flowed from there. But instead, I think there was a real lack of courage, quite frankly. And so, you know, I, I give you those positive examples of abolition, civil rights movement, certainly pro-life movement we could throw in there, of course, as well, almost entirely led by people of faith. Um, and then I'll give you the negative example of where, by and large, we did not act. And certainly church leadership didn't act, right? Some of those folks you mentioned before, you know, the Russell Moores and the David Frenches, I didn't hear anything from them during the lockdowns. I didn't hear any of them saying, wait Not a second. Not anything against them. Well, correct. Right? Yes. Nothing against them. I, I, you know, I think those people who make the argument that Christians shouldn't be engaged in the political realm, they tend to see it as one or the other. You know, it's mutually exclusive that, that it is politics versus or over against actual preaching of the word and, you know, evangelistic efforts and things of this nature. And it's both. Sure. I mean, we're to be engaging all across uh, the cultural spectrum, not just in one or the other. Um, you know, it's it's true that policy as a rule doesn't change hearts. You know, working top down, um, bottom up is is what what you're you're aiming at at a grassroots level in order to to change hearts. That said, policy matters, sure. just as you've you've pointed out. And it's interesting. You're I was sitting here thinking as you made reference to. Uh, you know, to the abolitionist, um, you know, Harriet Beecher Stowe, you know, wrote Uncle Tom's Cabin, which was a, you know, became an abolitionist tract, you know, as it were, and mobilized a nation against slavery because it was a kind of expose. Abraham Lincoln, upon meeting her, said, so you're the little woman who started this war. <laughs> you know, she, she, uh, she, the effect of that book was to move people to say this evil must stop mm -hmm. and we haven't had our Harriet Peacher Stowe's you know who are acting in our own modern time to mobilize uh, uh, Christians who by and large are kind of sitting on the bench and allowing the cultural tide to just carry them, carry them right. wherever it is with the exception of those few individuals who have decided nope nope working top down does matter and uh it is important that we oppose evil policies. And right. we were just referring to Trump and, you know, the appointment of Supreme Court justices. That will save untold millions of lives. And then you have a guy like Ron DeSantis. And I want to say this, you know, listen, I Steve, you're a friend of mine, and I've kind of put you in an awkward position because you are you're a man of integrity, you're a man of faith, and you've been a Trump supporter and I did Trump advisor, and you're, you know, a guy like you, I might put in a, a someone who, with lesser character than you, 
might come on here and feel it's his job to pound, pound, pound away right. at Trump. So I appreciate the fact that you're you've 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 really endeavored to be very open and honest in your your own views and your own assessments. Uh, let's move to DeSantis for just a minute. Sure. What what kind of guy is he? Is is he a guy of authentic faith? You obviously yes. believe that he is. Absolutely. Tell us a little bit about how who he is and why he thinks as a Christian he should be running for. Right. You know, not just governor, but running for president of the United States. So I, I'm totally convinced that Governor DeSantis is, is a thoroughly Christian, believing man, and that his heart belongs to Jesus Christ. Uh, he takes his Catholic faith extremely seriously. And the reasons I believe him are, are twofold. Number one, his own words. Uh, and he speaks very convincingly on that uh, and has fantastic relationships with evangelical uh, audiences and I think speaks in a way that very few Catholics do to evangelicals, speaks their language uh, in very many ways. Uh, but then number two, looking at his policies, looking at his actual, you know, his actions in office and particularly, again, my personal conversation with him before he signed the pro-life legislation where he acknowledged to me, you know, no media around, acknowledged to me, this may not be good for me politically, uh, but it is the right thing to do. I promise to do it. We must protect these babies. We must protect these mothers. We finally have the option to do so because of uh, Roe v. Wade being overturned, and I'm going to do it, and the consequences be damned. I think it's very much the same mentality he had, by the way, during COVID. So I mentioned how you know, the, the total lack of courage from so much church leadership regarding the lockdowns and the, and the tyranny you know, largely flowing from Tony Fauci in Washington, D.C., and a lot of the terrible governors and mayors around America. Ron DeSantis was the opposite of that, and he did it when it was difficult because he did not he did. know what the consequences would be, right? It was possible, for example, that his scientific advisors were wrong. Now, yeah. it turns out they were exactly correct, uh, particularly that Dr. Latipo, also a, a devoutly believing Christian, uh, who's his Surgeon General, basically his Fauci uh, down there in Florida, it's possible that he was wrong, right? I mean, it, it took enormous courage to step into that breach to endure a media firestorm. And if you remember in those days, I mean, Florida was going to be the state that, that killed all of America, right? The state that was going to slaughter its senior citizens, right? Because of Ron DeSantis and his recklessness. And ended um, up being states like New York. Yeah, exactly. And the exact opposite was true. And in fact, I believe in many ways, Ron DeSantis in Florida saved the country. I think that the tyranny of lockdowns would have been way more pervasive and, and much longer lasting had it not been for this example of Florida to the, to the country. No, look, they are reopening. They're in school. Their children are not being masked and abused. Uh, and their trends are either the same or slightly better regarding the virus than the rest of the country. That took enormous, enormous courage. And I think that flowed, not that it's, a, unlike the life issue, it's not a specifically faith-oriented issue, the, the issue of COVID, but I think it gets to the bravery uh, of his conviction and his character, which I think does flow from his personal faith which flows from his, his faith in Jesus Christ. Um, so it's, it's one of the reasons. It's not the only reason or the, even the leading reason that I'm backing him for president because I think, again, there are other authentic Christians in the race. Uh, Mike Pence, you know, again, I, I don't care for his politics. I don't think his candidacy is going anywhere, but he's clearly a, a wonderful, um, uh, admirable Christian man. So it's not the only reason that I would support Ron DeSantis, but it certainly adds to my support for him. Um, and again, getting back to Donald Trump, you know, whatever is in his heart, Politically speaking, I, that's not really very relevant. Uh, he did great things for, for people of faith. He did great things for society. Uh, I think Ron DeSantis will do even greater things uh, from here, but that's obviously an argument that voters are going to have to figure out. But you would say he's, he's not driven by business arrangements. He's driven by his faith. I think that's correct, yes. That, that's, that's what's motivated him to enter into 
public life in the first place. Correct. And he was, you know, raised in that kind of family where faith was uh, very, very important. Um, Italian uh, immigrant background, all four of his grandparents, uh, immigrants from Italy, raised in a very middle class. He's got an unbelievable biography, you know, in, in total uh, of, a, of a blue collar middle class kid who has risen to pretty incredible heights very early in life, you know, for somebody who's only 44 years old, but included in that biography, you know, outside of the sort of temporal achievements, which are really significant, uh, I think also has had a, a heart uh, rooted in Christianity, rooted in faith, um, and in his family, and in that, and in those ways, I think is an exemplar for us. And again, the ideal, of course, what I think we should strive for as Christians is is leaders who have the the conviction and the tenacity to fight for us in the public square. Okay, that's what we should strive for. But what the act, the ideal, is somebody who will do that plus. Uh, models the kind of virtue that we should emulate, right? As as Christians, as human beings, as fathers, as husbands, all of that. And I, I think in Ron DeSantis, we get all of the above. Yeah, um, he's uh, he's an impressive guy, and there's no question that he's a fighter. I mean, he's he's he is does not mind mixing it up. And I would definitely agree with you that he was very bold. Trump kind of acquiesced on the lo- on the lockdown. Not kind of, he did yeah. uh, acquiesce on those and. DeSantis took a massive political risk in early on saying, we're not going this direction. And it, the gamble paid off because he was right. Let's make this a little more personal for you. I mean, you've spent much of your career in the public eye. You've been at CNBC. You've been at uh, uh, CNN, Newsmax, Fox. Then you've transitioned to becoming um, a, a political advisor to presidential candidates, uh, to various others. For you... You've had to think very deeply on the question of, as a Christian, engaging in the political realm. Right. Uh, what's that thought process been like for you? How, I mean, because you do th- take your faith very seriously. Sure. Absolutely. So, you know, it was the, the, the driving reason that I, that I went from being just a media and sort of business news figure into politics and then directly into electoral politics. The, the driving reason was my faith. And, and I'll tell you why. So when I first got into media, it was on CNBC for many years, and we just talked tickers. And it was a lot of fun. And I mean, listen, that matters. And I think it's a worthy profession, of course, to try to manage people's money well, to try to make money in, in investments. It's fun. Nothing wrong with that. But I came to a realization that I was, particularly because of the way my Wall Street career worked, I was primarily serving some of the biggest hedge funds in the world, many of whom were overseas in Europe. Um, and I was helping very wealthy people get wealthier. Nothing wrong with that, uh, but I didn't feel in my heart that that was my vocation, that that was my calling from God. Um, and I felt that I had TV skills and communication skills that could be used to do something much more meaningful for many more people than just a very small group of already very successful people, worldly successful people. So when I started getting into the political realm of media, at first I was trying to do both. I was trying to maintain my Wall Street career while being really involved in political media there would just was not enough bandwidth, enough time in the day, enough time in my life to do both well and to be a good father and husband. So I had to make a choice. And uh, I, I then dove headfirst into the political side and I left Wall Street and left uh, you know, a pretty, frankly, lucrative business that was a lot easier, frankly, than what I do now. Um, so there was risk to it. I also left a life where when you're in the business news and you're only debating tickers, uh, you know, the world is kind of your oyster. People like you generally, right? I mean, because you're not being very controversial generally, right? Um, very, very different in the political arena, right? The animus, particularly right now, I think we're more polarized as a society than we have been probably since the Civil War in the United States. The animus is intense. 
Um, the hatred is, you know, significant, particularly online. So it's unpleasant in a lot of ways. And you've taken some hits. I mean, yeah. in in choosing in choosing to um, to leave the Trump campaign and support Ron DeSantis, you've taken some some personal yeah. hits. Well, and a, a ton of hits for joining Trump in the first place, yes. right? And now a ton of hits for for shifting teams. Uh, on top of that, my wife likes to tease me. You know, she said about half of America hated you because of Trump. She said now half of the other half hates you uh, because you've made this move. And and listen, it's. Uh, uh, it's not enjoyable, okay, that kind of vitriol, um, but I think it's worth it if you believe it's your calling. And I guess that's my point is I, I believe that God called me to use that. He, he gave me these TV skills, which I was only using in the financial arena. Again, nothing wrong with that, but I'm not really making the world better. I'm not improving society. Um, and as somebody who believes that we are losing our country very quickly, like so I, I believe in the urgency of the moment. You know, I think it's, it's so critical for us as Christians particularly, but for all Americans, to recognize what time it is in America. I, I think our republic is slipping away and at an accelerating pace, unfortunately. I think in many ways we live in an oligarchy, one that is totally antithetical to, to a Christian worldview. Um, if I have a platform and skills that can help in that fight, that can engage on, on our side, um, you know, I felt compelled to, to enter. And, and when I say compelled, not just on my own volition, uh, but compelled from on high. And I really believe that that was the case and, and, and have done so. And, and don't get me wrong, I mean, there's certainly fun aspects of my job uh, now in my role in, in politics now and in, in media, uh, but there are a lot of not fun aspects. Um, and in some ways, there are times when I wish I could go back to that give world of Wall Give us a story, come on, give us a story. You know, <laughs> there are times when I wish I could go back, uh, but it, it's, it, is, it is worth it because this country's worth it, because unborn children are worth it, because Christianity is worth it, because allowing the church to flourish again in this country. To me, like, let me tell you this. I, if people ask me, what's the greatest thing about the United States, right? I could give all kinds of answers. There's a million answers about it. It's the greatest country in the history of the world. But to me, the greatest thing of this great country is that it was the place where Christians could thrive for centuries, right? And where, where Christianity, even if it didn't, in, even if Christianity didn't win over the hearts and minds of all Americans, uh, it at least dominated the culture of the United States. It dominated the culture. It, was, it dominated it's, the law. Its place in our culture, in our society, was respected. Yeah. And to me... Its importance was understood. That is the greatest aspect of America. I think that has eroded incredibly in recent decades. And again, I think the pace of the erosion is accelerating uh, dramatically. So I think it's incumbent upon those of us who have skills in the political arena to get directly involved. I mean, involved doesn't you know, make it our career. I think it's incumbent upon every Christian to be involved in whatever way their life allows, you know, or, or facilitates uh, for them. Um, and uh, to give you, you know, one story, you know, I know you asked me for a story. I think this is an interesting one of, of, you know, how as Christians, if we are engaged in these arenas that are not particularly Christian or in some cases anti-Christian, uh, how we can be salt and light. When I worked for CNN, so I worked for CNN for two years at Donald Trump's request, by the way. So when he was president of the United States, I was working for Fox and he asked me uh, to go over to CNN to be effectively his voice, you know, on these eight-person panels where it's, you know, seven leftists and then one conservative that they're trying to beat up on. You know, that was me, right, uh, at CNN. I was, I was basically his representative at CNN. And I, and I did that. It wasn't fun, but I did it at his request. But, but it was fascinating of my interactions there, uh, particularly getting to know a lot of the producers and particularly the younger producers. Some of the more senior, older producers, I think were so set in their ways that they weren't willing to be persuaded about much of anything, quite frankly, in their life. But I found my interactions with the younger producers, they had in their minds, you know, in, mostly in New York and Washington, D.C., and they had in their minds 
an image of me or people like me, but you know, of me, that, well, he's just a Christian right uh, hate monger, effectively, right? And then getting to know me, you know, they saw, well, that's very clearly not true, right? That, that this is an incredibly happy guy. He's a likable, affable guy, loves his family, uh, you know, loves football, loves all kinds of, you know, we connected on so many human levels. And so I think I was able to take some of the sting out of their, of their view um, and to disabuse them of this caricature notion that they had of, of what Christian conservatives, you know, are all about. And I think that's pretty important. I also one time got, and this is the, the story part, I one time got a call from a producer who I had never met, didn't know, not, not involved in any of the shows that I worked on, and said, hey, I need to ask you some questions about church. I said, okay, you know, what kinds of questions? And uh, they were pretty honestly innocuous questions, but I just, I just out of curiosity, you know, why did you call me? Because it's not, it's not as, I'm not a pastor. I don't go on air to, to give the church line on anything. He said, well, I asked around, he said, and of all of our contributors, we were told you're the only one who goes to church. <laughs> so, you know, it, isn't I don't that, know if that's really true that I that, am, that I was, that, but. That kind of thing is astonishing to me. Years ago, I, you know, as, as I mentioned to you, I, I did some work for CNN and uh, I got a text from a producer from one of their major shows. I, I don't want to give this, this person away, but one of, their, one of their major evening shows. And they said, hey, we're about to have this very prominent Christian pastor on, and the host of the show, who you would know, doesn't know what to ask him. Can you give us some ideas? And I said, well, he's, he's pretty well known for this issue and this issue and this issue, all things that were very much in the, in the lane of a Christian pastor, theological. Right. Some of them had to do with church growth, you know, this type of thing. There's this pause, and then I begin to see the little, you know, the bubble cloud, you know, come up right. as they're typing on the other side. They said, just, just talk to, um, to the host, and she says, I could ask those questions, but after he answered, she, I wouldn't know what to say as follow-up questions right. <laughs> to that. So I thought, okay, so this is the beltway. They don't understand Red State America, right. which raised questions for me. Why are you even having him on? Mm -hmm. What is the point of having this guy on other than the fact that he has a huge following, but we're going to have him on and ask him nothing about what he actually right. does for a living. So I thought, uh, I went, went and got the remote, turned on CNN. I thought, okay, I'll watch the interview. The guy comes on and her first question is, um, so tell us what you think about the war in Iraq. <laughs> and he has this look of confusion right. as if to say, I mean, well, I guess I can give you a you know opinion on that, but that's right. That's it's, not who I am or what lane. I do, and I yeah. yeah, I don't know anything. And he about probably this. wasn't apprised that he would be asked about that either. And I, I have a story about that too, and not not one instance, but many many instances. So when I worked for CNN, when I would be on these panels, uh, very regularly, uh, not not regularly, every time there is an email sent out ahead of time of hey, you know, hey, these are going to be the talking points we're yeah. going to hit. We're going to show this video or play this audio. <laughs> we're going to show this graph. Um, and what I came to realize, and this is absurd, but it's the reality, they would send one to me that was different than the one they sent to everybody oh, else. Oh, no kidding. Yes, and it either had incorrect, had it either had purposefully incorrect information, right, or it just had a lot less information, right, than the other one. In other words, well, they this... got the full briefing, and I got the partial. Why? Because they wanted me to look. It's, it's one of these very strange situations when you're being paid by an organization, you're their employee, and yet they are trying to make you look silly on air. They're well, trying what, to catch you. It's what you and I were talking about, um, you know, over coffee this morning, that it would make a very di interesting discussion just 
helping people to navigate how media works because the average person hasn't a clue right. about how, how these kinds of things go. I mean, just to your point, I'm, in, I'm invited by, I published this piece in USA Today right after Charlie Hebdo. This weird kind of thing happened after Charlie Hebdo where you would think they would be discussing the violence of Islam, but mm -hmm. no, somehow the left morphed that into a, a conversation about, well, Christians are violent too. Mm -hmm. So I published a piece in USA Today in which I said, well, you know, um, not so. And I was using data, you know, explaining, you know, uh, the, uh, you know, we, we, we don't have Amish flying planes into the sides of, uh, of, of buildings. These were not Presbyterians who killed all these people at the Bataclan and at the Charlie Hebdo offices. And so, uh, uh, Al Jazeera invites me to New York, flies me up to New York to debate the issue. And at the very last second, they say, Oh, by the way, a, and I was going to be debating it with, you know, some politicos, but, at the last second, they said, oh, by the way, we have a Muslim cleric who's going to join the conversation. And I thought, oh, what? So this is live. Mm -hmm. I don't know this guy. I don't know who he is, but I promise you he's been well prepped for me Sure. going into the debate. I mean, it's exactly what you're talking right. about. These yeah. kind of really underhanded tactics and where they clearly have a plan to ambush you, but you've not been brought in on it. These are the kind of things that you know people just don't have a clue right. about what actually goes on behind the scenes sure <laughs> no the, the gamesmanship uh what cnn used to do a lot with me too because i was mostly i was living in chicago then so i mostly did it remote from chicago um and you know obviously i don't have proof of this but i would bet a whole lot of money this is the reality uh messing with my audio right so we're you know with the, with the earpiece you're not quite hearing things as clearly as you should because it might make you look confused uh, you might not be quite as persuasive and articulate as you, as you know you would otherwise be. You know, and it's also smooth the way it's presented on TV. Right. No one would ever know that. I, I had that happen with BBC. They, they brought me on, cut off my mic where I could not respond when um, Lawrence Krauss, uh, astrophysicist and an ass, by the way, <laughs> they brought on Krauss to pound away at my own arguments, and I'm not allowed to respond. Right. I'm not allowed to respond. You are... Going back to this idea of you engaging in the, in the political realm, you're a father of four. How does that factor into your desire to engage in the political realm oh. and the preservation of, of what we've known as America? No, listen, it's absolutely critical. And uh, because I look at my children and, and out of my love and, and hope for them, it troubles me greatly that they are not growing up in the kind of country that I grew up in, that you grew up in. And I fear it will be even worse for their children someday, right? So. Those of us who, you know, well, those of us who have an ability to do something full time, you know, I think have to have to do that. But everyone has an ability to do something right to to take action in whatever their sphere of influence is. And that sphere of influence may just be a few people, maybe your next door neighbor, maybe a friend at church. Maybe it's not big and grand. That's OK. Whatever your sphere of influence is, you know, you have to to do whatever you can. I, I believe as a citizen of the United States, even from a secular point of view, but certainly as a Christian uh, called to be salt and light to the to the world to ensure that, that my kids and your kids and grandkids uh, are going to have the kind of America that they deserve, the kind of America that we inherited. And right now we are failing, quite frankly, at passing down, at passing down this, you know, this great inheritance. So yes, it's, it's so driving to me. And by the way, I would point this out too. Uh, if you look at the political leaders who are the most leftist and the most radical, almost without exception, they either have no children or they might have one, usually no children. And I understand that a lot of people can't have children, and, I, and I, I think it's a tragedy for a lot of couples, so I'm not at all passing judgment on people 
in terms of the, the number of children they have. But it is very remarkable to me, and I think this is true, by the way, if you look all over the world. You know, for example, some of the most secular leaders in Europe have no children. Uh, there was a time, in fact, when the, when the leaders of the, of the major countries of Western Europe, uh, uh, Merkel in Germany, Macron in France, um, uh, I can't remember who it was at that point in UK, uh, but, but Spain, France, Germany, UK, Italy, all of them had childless prime ministers or presidents at, at one point, um, which I think is very telling and very revealing. So again, not that you have to have children to be an authentic Christian, not that you have to have children to be an effective conservative in the political arena, but it is absolutely a common dividing line. Um, and it is certainly one of the reasons that I am so motivated, right, is, is my love for my kids, my love for children in general, in, uh, and my desire to see a country where, where the birth rate rises again, a country of optimism. I mean, think about that. You know, to me, one of the, you know, we, there's all kinds of ways to gauge optimism and confidence in a country. And unfortunately, by almost every metric, it's tanking in America right now, um, particularly on the economic side. But maybe one of the most profound uh, measures of the optimism of a society is reproduction, is, is birth rate. And tragically, the United States, which for many decades had resisted the, the sort of pan-Western trend of lower birth rates, right, which, which dominated certainly European, uh, the European world and even Japan, the United States had resisted that for a very long time. We are no longer resisting. As a matter of fact, our trends are now very much in line with places like Italy and Japan and Spain in terms of an imploding birth rate. So um, and I think a lot of that's policy. Not all, of course. It's, it's human hearts. It's, it's secularism. There's many, many factors there. It's multi-layered. Well, we've um, become an anti-child society. Yeah. I mean, there's no other way of putting it. I, I, we grew up in, a, in an American culture that was very pro-children. Mm -hmm. And I don't mean just pro-children in the sense of having children. I just mean the attitude towards children was, was positive. Sure. It was... a friendly attitude. It was that these are the innocents we must protect. There is a war on children. Yeah. And it's through abortion, it's through the aforementioned, you know, irreversible adolescent sex change surgeries. It's through the ideological, soul-destroying um, policies, teaching, um, the, the, the drag queen shows for kids and Marxism being taught in the, the classroom, all these kinds of things, they are the left is, has become fundamentally anti-human right. and anti-child. So, you know, Larry, re regarding this, this war, and it is a war on children that's being waged by the secular humanist left in the United States and using so many powerful institutions, um, teachers unions, media organizations, uh, you know, curriculum to attack children in, in so many ways, attack their minds, in some cases actually attack their bodies in terms of mutilating them, their private parts, and uh, permanently def you know, deforming their genitalia. Uh, there, are, there thankfully is a pushback, you know, particularly in red states, and in my now home state of Tennessee, I'm really proud to say that Tennessee is, is the only state of, in America so far that has passed both thoroughly pro-life legislation, abortion is effectively outlawed in the state of Tennessee, at the same time, outlawed these outlandish uh, drag queen story hour or whatever kind of perverse performances that have been going on in front of children. And they have been happening in Tennessee, believe it or not. Uh, and then thirdly, outlawed these, these crazy uh, child mutilation surgeries to change the sex of young children. And a lot of that was happening in Tennessee at Vanderbilt. Unfortunately, there was at, at Vanderbilt University, which is in Nashville, Tennessee, uh, there was a very prolific clinic 
doing a whole lot of these surgeries. So the Tennessee legislature, thankfully, good people of Tennessee, one of the most conservative states in America, one of the most Christian states in America, the good people of Tennessee through the legislature said no more on all of these, no more abortion, no more drag queen story hours in this state, uh, and no more mutilation of children. Well, that is something to be celebrated, but, and unfortunately, there, there's, a, there's a but here, the caveat, federal courts, for now at least, have vacated not the abortion law, but the other two. Federal courts have said that they are unconstitutional. Now, clearly the courts are acting in a way that is illog illogical and itself totally unconstitutional. Clearly the state of Tennessee has the authority, the statutory power, the constitutional um, authorization to enact these laws. But here's my point for Christians being engaged in the public square, getting back to this sort of central question of, you know, should we be engaged in this dirty business of politics? Well, if we are not, we are effectively handing the keys over to the secular humanist left, to these kinds of judges. Why are these judges there? They probably, I don't know the specific cases, I'd have to look at the judges' biographies, but my strong bet is they've probably been there for decades because the left has been far better at playing the long game, frankly, than we on the right, and particularly than Christians. Well, this is, this is what I'm getting at earlier. I said legislative fiat. I misspoke. I meant judicial fiat. The left targets the levers of power. Right. They want to do an end run on the popular will of the people, and the way to do it is by targeting, um, you know, the judiciary, uh, so that the will of the people is such that we say we don't want these things. But then some leftist judge comes in and says, "No, you can't do that. Right. Trump's not allowed to do this, or you know, uh, DeSantis isn't allowed to do this." These kinds of things happen far, far too frequently. Right. And by the way, I believe, and this is certainly a controversial stance, but I believe that it is time for these red states, the situation is so dire, that it's time for these red states to defy federal courts. I really believe that it's time to, you know, a great Tennessean, Andrew Jackson, right, who said uh, effectively, you have made your ruling to the Supreme Court when he was president, you have made your ruling, now enforce it. Well, uh, that was at the federal level. I think it's time for the states to say to some of these federal judges, when they have just so clearly and blatantly abused their power and overstepped any, you know, even reasonable semblance of what their what their true authority should be i think it's time for these red states to tell them to go pound sand and to say we we have the right to make these decisions as as free states and free people of these free states and we're, we're not going to listen to you so you've heard it right here um steve cortez says um throw some tea into the boston harbor basically right <laughs> and i'm not saying take up arms but i'm saying metaphorically take up arms right political arms of saying uh, that, yeah, we're, we're not going to stand for this. And we, we will not have a liberal judge who is tenured for life tell the people of sensible states that they cannot pass uh, legislation to protect the innocence of children. That we, we will The American not. Revolution was fought for much less yeah. than the things that we're seeing taking place in this country right now. And uh, it's alarming. I know that for me, to, to just go back just a little bit, a, a huge motivator for me as a as a as a Christian is the fact that I am a father. I'm a father of four, right. uh, as you know, and um, I I feel that I have a responsibility to do my best to leave to my children, to my grandchildren. I'm a little ahead of you, uh, my children just a little ahead of you, your children, and and so we're now starting to see you know grandchildren. I have three granddaughters now, three little granddaughters, and. Uh, you know, I look at them and I think I have a responsibility to fight for their future. I, I, I can't determine what their own personal lives look like, but I hope, I hope to leave, I hope my generation leaves 
uh, soil in which they can flourish right. in, whatever that is, right. that they have an, uh, the opportunity to be what they might be, to make their own choices. And that's not the direction that, that, that we're headed. Rather than having the attitude that I think many Christians have is, ah, we're just, you know, I'm, I'm on cruise control now, I'm out. You know, I'm just, I'm, just, I'm, uh, I'm tapping out, I'm, I'm, I'm moving on. Uh, enough of this, I don't want to deal with it. That just, to me, is not a Christian attitude at sure. all. Well, and you made this point so persuasively in some of your videos and your writing that God is not particularly interested in our comfort, right? The comfortable thing to do for a lot of Christians, particularly if their own life is in relatively good order, let's say you know they have a happy family, they have a nice home, their finances are relatively secure, the comfortable thing to do is disengage from the outside world, don't fight, right? And to your point, sort of sail into you know, the sunset and I'll go to heaven someday and be content with that, right? Yeah. Uh, because I'm a, I'm a believer in the Lord. But what the Lord actually wants from us, at, at often wants from us, right, is difficulty and strife and perhaps even suffering, right? Perhaps even intense suffering. So I hope that we feel, well, we should be joyful Christians, of course, always. And I hope we project that even in the political arena, right? I try very hard. I'm often talking about subjects which get me really mad, Larry, okay, yeah. really angry. Mutilating children, I mean, that nothing will get me angrier than that, right? Um, but I, even, even in that arena, and even when discussing those kinds of issues, I still try to project the joy that I think every Christian you know, should project outwardly. Uh, but at the same time, I also hope that we, if we're committed Christians, feel the weight and the burden of what you're talking about to future generations, you know, both our own children and then just broadly, right, children and grandchildren to come. And I also feel that as Americans, I hope we feel the weight that we inherited a pretty fantastic America. I think America, up until, say, roughly the 1980s, uh, was a pretty wonderful society on the whole. Of course, tons of problems like any human society in a fallen world. But on the whole, a, a pretty terrific place uh, and a place largely driven by a Christian worldview, even if it wasn't explicitly so. That has changed very dramatically in the last 30 years or so. And people like you and I, quite frankly, people of our age, uh, who have influence, who have platforms, uh, who have a certain amount of power, uh, you know, I'll be damned if we don't use it, right, to try to make sure that we hand off something as good or better than what was handed off to us. And, you know, and I, I hope we feel the, the burden of that. I think that's a, a proper burden, and it may in fact be the burden that the Lord himself is placing on us, right, to engage in this fight, that this is not about your comfort, uh, this is about my will, you know, meaning his will, and about his kingdom, and, and, uh, and about virtue. And if it is, probably a lot of it's going to be difficult, quite frankly. Well, and that is the calling of every Christian. I mean, I, there, there are specific callings beneath that umbrella, but we're all called, we're all called to share our faith. We're all called to defend it. And uh, in uh, defending the, the voiceless, you know, I'm thinking of the unborn, defending the weak children, uh, that that's that's a part of it, and uh, it feels to me cowardly to disengage from the culture and uh, and not take these issues on. And I I say this, it feels like I say this in almost every podcast, but I really do believe that what we're seeing is a situation of the tail wagging the dog. And I, I really believe that if we are to mobilize the sensible people of this country, Christian and otherwise, mm -hmm. I, we can change this country. Sure. We can absolutely change this country, but it's going to require courage. It's going to require people willing to suffer. Uh, and by the way, that even, even that needs some qualification. I'll soon be in Nigeria with Christians who are genuinely, I mean, really suffering. Um, 
people who are suffering uh, physical mm-hmm. persecution uh, at the hands of, um, of Islamic militants, mm-hmm. uh, often uh, being killed, uh, mutilated, these kinds of things. Suffering in, in the American to- context, at least at this point, we don't know what the future holds, right. but at this point, you know, you're, you're talking about maybe losing a promotion or possibly losing a job or people saying mean things about you on social media. Get over yourself and be willing to get out there and uh, engage. Listen, I, as we close, I want to give you the opportunity to make a real pitch for your guy. <laughs> why should people who are out there paying attention to this, uh, this, this podcast, why should they vote for Ron DeSantis? Sure, and I, I appreciate that opportunity. Let me say first, I have enormous regard for President Trump, and it was one of the honors of my life to work for him and to advocate strenuously on his behalf for many years. So this was not a decision I took lightly to shift my allegiance and to and to work for Ron DeSantis. So it wasn't because they came to you and said, we'll give you way more money no. than he has to be the mercenary who right. works. Right? So you're not just some hired gun. Not at all. Not at all. Uh, no, do this out of, out of principle. And if anything, the incentives were very much, for me at least, my selfish incentives were very much geared to staying with Trump. It would have been better for me financially, professionally, to have gone that, or at least have gone neutral. That would have been maybe the safest route of all, to just say, you know what, I'm out of this, this race. Uh, to, to leap over to DeSantis does involve some professional and uh, uh, financial risk for me. But here's, my, here's the reason I did it, and here's the reason I hope to persuade people to vote for Ron DeSantis. I think in Ron DeSantis, what we get is much of the philosophy that we got with Donald Trump, meaning a patriotic populist nationalism, a, a robust, muscular conservatism, as evidenced by his record in the state of Florida. Uh, but we get that philosophy and that agenda and that record without the baggage that largely comes with Donald Trump, who, let's face it, is the most polarizing figure in all of American society, and other than Joe Biden, the least popular person in American society. Now, I think a lot of that unpopularity is unfair and unjust and illogical, but the reality is it's there. And at this point, uh, well into his political career now, he's, he's no newcomer anymore to the political scene, I think it is very unlikely that you're going to see those negatives and that polarization recede for Donald Trump. I believe, Larry, it is imperative that we win. All of the things we've talked about today, all of the negative forces in our society, they are accelerating. Um, the anti-child, anti-constitution, anti-church practices of the secular left, they are largely winning and they continue to win, you know, again, at, at, a, at a rapid, more rapid pace. So time is of the essence. There's an urgency, I think, recognizing what time it is in America. We must win in 2024. I believe the man who can win, the leader who can win, is Ron DeSantis. The main reason I say that is because of what he did in the state of Florida. He took what was a swing state that he barely won in 2018 by the skin of his teeth, was elected governor. Four years later, after four years of incredibly conservative governance, after a lot of bravery through COVID, he won by almost 20%. Those kinds of swings in four years in a large state almost never happen. I believe that is uh, repeatable countrywide, and I think he's exactly the kind of guy who can get who can get persuadable independent voters or reasonable Democrats that are still left out there, Democrat voters who are, who are disenchanted with Joe Biden, to vote for him for the presidency. And, and, and winning is paramount into 2024. I believe Ron DeSantis gives us by far the best shot to win in the general election. Now, this may seem an unfair question. If, if Trump wins the nomination, would you vote for Trump? Of course. No, and I don't have to hesitate for a moment. Of course I would. I, by the way, I would vote for any Republican uh, over Joe Biden or anybody the Democrats would put up. You know, take my least favorite Republican would probably be 
Chris Christie. Okay, <laughs> not a fan. I would, I would walk over some broken glass to vote for him over Joe Biden. Yeah. Okay. As much as I'm not a fan of Chris Christie, yeah. that's how important uh, the choice is. Now, I thoroughly intend on the nominee being Ron DeSantis. So yeah. don't get me wrong. I'm not equivocating, but of course I will vote for the Republican nominee. Yes. Steve has been great to have you with us. Thank you, Larry. Appreciate it.